Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. This is episode 140 of the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. I am here with Cal and Sandy Reed from Original Wisdom. And we're going to be talking about a bunch of different stuff, so stay tuned. A few words. That worked. Yeah, oh, we pick words. up. if we pick up Chris, this will be great. Sandy, if you want to say a few words? Yeah, a few words. Uh, yeah, here we go. Cal, you want to say a few words? I just love finally meeting you face-to-face. This is a hoot. Aww. I'm from the peanut gallery. <laughs> <laughs> Marley, anything? Early. He's not very vocal. <laughs> <laughs> he's, oh, he's mouthing he's it. He's pretending. <laughs> and to know the landscape is to open up a door. Than you've ever felt before. We know that you will love this podcast. So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. Hey there, folks. It's Canadian Bushcraft Podcast. I am joined with two people I have been dying to meet in person for the last two years. Cal and Sandy Reed from Original Wisdom, based out of West Virginia and Ohio, is where they're most of their time they spend, but they also spend time in places like Africa, which we might get into at some point tonight. I've met Cal and Sandy via the internet, which is not how I recommend you might meet most of your friends, but <laughs> these two have been a great, great resource to me over the last couple of years. I met them through my good friend Chris Gilmore, who is also here with his lovely wife and partner, Laura, and their great dog, Marley, who are going to be our peanut gallery in the background probably snipe in a few little sarcastic comments on me once in a while here and there but chris started up the hunter's journey as many of you are aware i've been one of the instructors with him for the last two years and during that time chris was like i got these two people down in the states that are so badass we got to bring them in and he's like their names are cal and sandy i'm like okay candy and sal good to remember that one and completely kept screwing that up for the next two years but <laughs> These two are fonts of knowledge, are phenomenal people that I absolutely adore. Sandy is a badass hunter and tracker and everything all around cool lady in the woods. Cal is this cool dude that does experimental archaeological skills from bowyer work to flint napping to just goofing around with materials that are around him to see how it's made and how things can work, which is the definition of freaking bushcraft. So this guy is a bushcraft guru, in my opinion. Uh, The last... 12 hours, a little bit more than 12 hours now, we've been spending time together at Chris and Laura's place up here in the Muskoka region, and we have been just playing, me and Kyle, while Sandy and Chris were teaching a tracking workshop, and tomorrow morning we run a Hunter's Journey workshop, one of our first live classes for the Hunter's Journey so far, not the last though, and so we decided, you know, we've been trying to get a podcast going for like a year now, with my broken ass computer and all the chaos in my (laughs) life, and I was... Cal reminded Chris to message me the other night. He's like, hey, can Caleb bring some podcasting equipment with him? We can just record in person. Hell yes. I went and grabbed the microphone immediately, got it packed up in my bag, and now we're sitting comfortable on a couch after a very exhausting day. So I'm not going to try and drag this on much too longer, but I want to introduce these two beautiful people, Cal and Sandy Reed. Sandy, thank you for joining us. Cal, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Total. Yeah, glad to be here. This is... A long time in the making, and I'm really excited to have you here. For those folks who have not met you, or if 
not had a chance to sit in on one of your talks or one of your classes in person or online. Who the hell are you guys? I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> Who the hell are we, hon? <laughs> uh, fellow journeyers. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Em- embracing the earth as often as we can and trying to help other people connect, really. Yeah. That, that kind of sums it up for me and my bushcraft skills. I mean, mm. uh, one of the students today pulled the, the philosophy right out. It's like they're aware that they can just help people be introduced to nature aspects of it mm. to help them know it mm. and then develop a relationship with it. They naturally come to love it and then they naturally start making choices to protect and nourish it. Hell yeah. Yeah, one of your favorite phrases that just popped into my head, Cal, is you always are constantly saying to touch is to know. Mm. And you, you know, one of the things that attracted to me so many years ago about you is is how you dig into everything and you touch it deeply. And you do that by recreating, reinventing. So, so many people approach life by reading the books and you read the earth mm. and you um, take raw materials and uh, you're really good at this. You're really good at, at not uh, living within the box or what the rules are. You enjoy breaking them and experimenting and finding out for yourself what works and what doesn't work. And I do that with people. I think you're really wow. the person that does that with materials. But I love doing it with people, and I think when we bring that together, uh, magic happens. It does. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely does. And speaking of bringing people together, where did you, like, first off, we, we got asked, like, what got you into this? But second of all, how did you guys get together? Like, how did this all begin? <laughs> where did original wisdom and how did the reads happen? Yeah. Well, Original Wisdom uh, was created by Chrissy Lawrence, who mm. is a very well-known and respected tracker. Yes. She's currently living in South Africa uh, with her partner, Lee Guttridge, and she grew up, though, in Connecticut. Mm. And I met her in 2012 on my very first visit to South Africa. I was there to um, check out uh, a location where I wanted to bring um, a group the following year to, to be in the bush uh, for a couple weeks, and I was checking things out. And I was spending some time in the bush uh, working on tracking skills. So we were specifically focusing on trailing animals uh, with a a heavy focus on rhino and lion. Mm. And there was this woman who was at our base camp. And uh, she was camping there to do her PhD research. And we would see each other in the morning, have a cup of tea or coffee. She'd talk a little about our research and share it with us. Then we went our separate ways all day. And then we'd get back, you know, at... at, uh, at dusk to eat dinner together and share our stories of the day. And we did this for two weeks. And uh, at the very end of it, I begged her. I said, will you please take me on wherever the heck it is that you go during the day? I, I want to take a day and travel with you and see what you do and talk. Uh, because I was the only woman there besides her. Mm. And she said, yeah. So we spent the day in a car. And at the end of the day, we became really good friends. So that's how I met Kersey. And uh, we stayed in touch, and one thing led to another, and eventually uh, she got to know Cal and I and invited us to be part of her original wisdom business, which is all about bringing people to um, programming and tracking and bushcraft and different places, especially the United States and South Africa, Mm. and having people uh, go through experiences uh, in that format, which... Um, are educational and um, 
kind of give them a chance to really engage directly with the earth. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. And before that, how did you two meet? What got you guys into tracking and bushcraft and all that is you that makes you guys so well there's many things that make you guys so badass your your passion for the subject matter and your your ability to tap into subjects and and conversations that i miss as an instructor 15 years now i still miss what you guys pick up with such graceful nuance when having conversations of subject matter which is why i love working with you guys but before that, what got you into tracking and nature and, and everything around it? And what got you, Cal, into it? And what caused you two amazing people to collide and become the Reeds? God knows I did. I tried hard not to meet this guy. <laughs> I really did. <laughs> really, yeah. I avoided it for how many years? <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't tracking you back then. You know, I, so. I, I, yeah, you go ahead, Cal. You, um, you can talk about your bushcraft. Well, briefly... Uh, my bio, I, I was born and raised in South Texas, near Galveston. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents were both born during the Depression. So they lived very efficiently, or they resourced all the landscape a lot. We raised yeah. a garden. I grew up hunting and fishing and camping. Right. And um, so that's, you know, my first connection with nature and wildlife. I moved from the Gulf Coast to West Virginia in 87. Mm. And... Um, Sandy and I were, had, she was uh, much more deeply connected with another outdoor school, and I started getting involved with it, and she wanted to extend the programming beyond basic survival, right? bushcraft skills, like fire making and mm -hmm. basic debris shelter and stuff like that, and she saw that I had done more, in her opinion, advanced skills, right? and she mentioned in a phone conversation one evening, she always wanted to make her own bow and arrow and take mm. a deer with it. Mm. And I said, I can help with that. Because I'd already done it at that point. I'd actually picked up that pursuit in earnest in my spare time in four years. This is really before internet stuff was yeah. out there. I taught myself bow making. Um, I broke sticks. I carved sticks. Uh, I read everything I could find on it. Um, I took up flint napping in earnest. I'd tried to break rocks years before. Mm. I got some better literature to read, and I finally got to where I could fashion something usable. And uh, really, I was taking deer animals at that time with a fiberglass recurve. Right. I'd taken a couple of deer, and I'd taken deer with rifle. And um, I ended up, after four years, I actually pulled it all together, and I took a a deer with the flint tipped arrow, which I showed you that today. Yeah, that was, was beautiful. I, that, that came out of the Calvary Primitive Archery Museum. I got it checked out for this trip. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, uh, and an Osage bow. Mm. And uh, it, was, it was a personal, long-term goal. It was an incredible achievement. And I vividly remember, it's like, I was on such a natural high, I didn't feel like I touched the ground for a week after. I had no idea what kind of mileage that would give me as far as an achievement. Yeah. Um, anyway, it, short in the story, um, a local sports writer stumbled across the event. He came out and did a, a, a front page article on me on Section B in the Charleston Gazette. And, right. And um, so that was, that whet my appetite as far as, hey, I could, you know, so much people got, gave me attention over that. But I spent a period of really diving deep into uh, indigenous living skills and earth living skills and resourcing what was in the in my environment um, 
just for a deeper connection. And it was, it was weird. It's almost like it was spirit driven. Mm. It's almost like, why am I doing this? I have a job. I'm keeping my bills paid, but something was driving me for that connection. And I went through a challenging relationship and the land really held me together mm. through a lot of trying stuff. Totally. And so, um, now it's trying to share the joy, share the love. There's, I, there's a deep hunger out there for not only the skill, I think primarily for the skills, there's a lot of uneasiness, it seems, in our current condition mm -hmm. of, of our society. And uh, that self-reliance piece, mm. um, I now carry a lot of it uh, that I can share it. And, I, and to touch is to know what Sandy said, my, one of my favorite points in like running a bow class is to get the student far long enough that I can come over and say, okay, guess what? I'm no longer your teacher. That piece of wood in your hands is now your teacher. Mm. I'm now your cheerleader. I like if, that. If you got any questions or support, I'm here for you. You know, post-class, here's my number. Give me a call. I want to keep you nurtured and fed and connecting as, as much as I can, whatever you have a capacity for, whatever I have. I only get 24 hours a day. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, hopefully that answers your question. Um, but part of, part of my drive was to assimilate all the skills I need because hunting is just one piece. Mm -hmm. uh, when I'm not able or being or capable or there's not a resource to bring down game, I, I eat more than meat. Yeah. So I learned, I do my best to learn wild edibles. Yeah. And then along with that comes wild medicinals. Mm -hmm. And then utilitarian uses of plants. Yeah. I, sp I spend a time studying, trying to accumulate an awareness and knowledge of a, two new plants a week or whatever. And in short order, I couldn't walk on the landscape without stepping on something of value. Yeah. It was wild. And, and I'm like, well, I've got to walk. I've got to go from A to B, right? Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, the earth is so abundant, it can tolerate me stepping on, you know. And some plants actually benefit from that kind of interaction. Yeah, from grazing or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It stimulates. Yeah. So, and I... And that's kind of nuance that I'm so excited about continuing to learn more of. Yeah. Uh, that's part of the amazing thing to get to come up here and spend with Chris and Laura because they're they're largely homesteading or, or they're, they they had this amazing garden, all this complexity and all these uh, weed patches that everything has value in it. Yes. You know, it depends on the eye of the observer. And I'm like, oh, I get it. You know, there's lamb's quarters and there's blah, blah, blah. And there's, I'm like, what is this? And then... You know, 20 minutes later, Laura yeah. gets through with that lecture. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, so the sharing of information is just a thrill. Um, and I've never been outside of the U.S. border, crossing the border. I've never been into Mexico. I've never been into Canada. Right. So this is this is quite a treat for me. Cool. I mean, I've flown to Africa and I've flown to Iceland and yeah. Australia. You never I've hopped rode... out of the country, but I haven't driven across the border. You, you, know, so. you never border hopped. You by foot like you never no i've never crossed over crossed. i've never been through customs crossing like we got to go through getting into canada <laughs> which turned out m much easier than i anticipated so yeah anyway the canadian border is pretty mild um i have many a funny story of crossing borders with laura and with plenty of other friends um with the the, the tribulations and the the anxiety of crossing and then oh that was painless never mind yeah. so yeah i get that completely it's it's a completely different world. I've had the uh, the opposite reaction of going to the States, crossing for the first time and experiencing the United States right. from a Canadian lens, but also from a bushcraft lens of living in Indiana and going down to Florida and traveling in Texas, and then eventually Wyoming, Montana, Utah, Colorado, all the Western states I could get to, 
it's it's a it's exhilarating because it's similar. The people speak the same language as you. The measurements of distance and driving is a little different, but other than that, like <laughs> most things are fairly on par, which is yeah. nice. At the same time, it can be quite exotic. Oh yeah. 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 You liking Canada so far? Oh, uh Yes. <laughs> I have to think, <laughs> you, you guys still have a pretty good mosquito population going on right now, and I grew up in that type of environment Galveston in South Texas, area, and so. I haven't missed it, and it's okay. I mean, I'm, I'm functioning with it. You yep, know? yep. It's quite manageable, but yeah, don't miss the mosquitoes. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure you've been told a few times now, this is the mild part of the year. Oh, yeah, no, I've heard it, and I'm like, remind me not to come in June. Yeah, June is black fly and mosquitoes, so it's quite entertaining, um, especially up this way where Laura and Chris live. When There's it, a lot of richness here that that, oh, yeah. that more than balances out that little nuance. Really, yeah. this is beautiful country. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous. I love driving up to their place, the Muskokas, and seeing all these different lakes and the mountain. The, pretty much, it's the Algonquin Highlands meet the Halliburton Highlands meet the Kawartha Highlands meet all, all these different. Drumlins and hillsides have been shaped by glaciers twelve thousand to thirty thousand years ago. Yeah, and so it's just this like rugged. You got to go east to go north around these lakes and hills, kind of landscape that just reminds me of, I don't know, ancient places. Yeah, it just doesn't feel like it should be less than a three hour drive from Toronto. We got some of your rocks in Ohio. Yeah, that's true. We came down. I understand ten thousand years ago. Yeah, glacial ground. You know? Yeah, and I'm like now we get to see where those rocks came from. It's mm-hmm. pretty cool. Yeah, this is, you're living, or not living, you're you're visiting in a place that is just north of a geological formation called the Land Between, where the limestone rock, sedimentary rock, collides with the granite Canadian shield. And yeah, the, I'm learning what the shield is now. I get it now. <laughs> it's a yeah, shield. I'm like, what the heck are they talking about? <laughs> it no, goes, that's blatant. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's Geology. what's it's what's left by the glaciers and then their recession when they went back up. And that's where all these lakes form is all the ice melting mm-hmm. from those glaciers and forming these kettle lakes and tea lakes and all that stuff. Which we swam in one today. Oh, yeah. God, that's a beautiful. Just a hint of, you know, tea color from the deciduous leaves and crystal mm-hmm. clear. And beavers flopping their tails around like, what are you doing here? You know, it's just like, it yeah, was a beautiful day today. Yeah. yeah, the Canadian welcome wagon then. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. It was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And it's an absolute pleasure getting to finally sit here with you guys. Like I'm I've been like pinching myself off and on throughout the days. Like, is this actually happening? Like is Cal actually showing me his secrets to the Adelaide and his secrets to fletching and his tips and tricks and his little hacks to do this stuff? Like mm-hmm. I've made Adelaide since I was oh my gosh, we're going on 21 years and I've been making out loud. And I learned more in the last 12 hours than I have in those 21 years with your concepts and your understanding and your nuances to the subject. And then sitting back and listening to Sandy with her students today, breaking down trailing and tracking in general and all these different tactics and techniques. I've been tracking since I was a kid. My father taught me to track when I was a little kid just to be able to find the moose that he shot kind of thing. And I've been tracking with people like Chris and Laura and Alexis and all these amazing people that we all know up this way that track people that have gone through cyber tracker and all that kind of amazing stuff. And the details and the understanding you have of the subject matter floors me, absolutely floors me. Like it was amazing to just sit back and be a fly on the wall for just the small little moments that you were in the classroom setting and then hearing you working through the the ridges around the, the the homestead with these students talking about the tracks and talking about what you're seeing out there it was 
absolutely incredible. Like I am floored by how incredible both you are as instructors and on the subject matters that you carry in your heads and your hearts and your hands. I look forward to, you know, I, I know our time here is limited, but mm. I'd like to learn from you. Um, it's very flattering to hear those words, but the truth is, uh, you, know, you know, you talk to any tracker and tracking is one of the most humbling things you can do yeah. because it's so bottomless. So you start doing that and you share it with other people and the other people you share it with who are so-called beginners, right? Mm -hmm. With the beginner's eye out there, always showing me stuff I, or a perspective I've never seen before. So, you know, you're very kind, but um, the truth is I know very little and the truth is, is that what, why is tracking so appealing, right? Yeah. Um, it's the ultimate of bringing in all knowledge in the landscape, uh, the trees, the birds, you know, all the more than human world, and, and bringing it together and unfolding the story. Mm. And just like a beginner reader, you know, using your picture books, yeah. that's what I think we were doing today, Caleb. Totally. <laughs> we were doing the picture book reading. But, um, but you know, give it a lifetime and give it uh, interacting with people like you and people like Chris and Laura and, and, and uh, bringing you know, people into your life who've been doing this for a long, long time. I will bring you through the picture books and into the mystery novels and, yeah. and until you die, right? You can't yeah. read them all. So it's a lot of fun. And today was a real blessing to be here in this space on this land. Uh, talking to Chris and Laura about the stories that they had to tell about this land that they're caretakers of mm -hmm. and to be allowed to walk it and then to discover some of those stories with a group that was just over excited and passionate about learning. <laughs> That's, uh, I should be paying you guys back uh, you have for quite a while. You have so been. It was though. great, great day. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah. And I got to just sit in the shade with these mosquitoes around us watching y'all <laughs> break it down and like yeah these are newcomers and so you're going through the picture books and sometimes you're reading the story for them yeah sometimes but the fact that like what, what i was talking about from from my lens was seeing you as an instructor of the subject mm -hmm. to these students and being able to show them those picture books or read the sentence for them or walking through the color by numbers kind of concept of mm -hmm. of learning while also showing them some like real good tactics, like the the drag log and all the hiding tactics and all that kind of stuff, yeah. these these skills that they were accumulating throughout the day, like it it literally looked by the end of the day, like he had cracked their skulls open with a precision hacksaw and just <laughs> hacked it <laughs> with yeah, like we a cider press with right. a bunch of information <laughs> and sealed that lid on the top again, and they were still hungry. Yes, they were. They, we all promised each other that we wouldn't do one day ever again. It would have to be at least a weekend or, or maybe more. Totally. Um, because, you know, it's hard. It's hard, too, in our society to find people who carry that passion or that flame. Mm -hmm. and, and they want to know. And they don't know how to know. And where are the teachers? Or where are just the other people who want to hang out with me? And I talked to them about that. I said it was so much fun for me because I usually back at home, I, I track alone. Yeah. And that doesn't mean I have a lot of... I don't have friends who do this yeah. uh, or I don't have friends who are interested or who want to be outdoors and, and be, you know, learning, but um, they aren't necessarily living nearby. So yeah. it was really a cool day to get together with like-minded, like-hearted people mm -hmm. and, and share and, and create some stories of our own. Definitely. Yeah. It was, 
So cool to watch. Absolutely so cool to watch. You have to do it with this next time. I know. Come on. I'm I gonna know. Drag you have a chair next time. You. you couldn't have them today. I was, I was my day yeah, to play Yeah, I know. Table, there were yeah. things to be done. Other stories to be told and created. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, Important. we had we had so much fun just making I'm glad. I had fun making toys. You guys, you guys <laughs> we were, were tr- over there whispering like two little kids. <laughs> it was like the it was like play dates from kindergarten. Yes. Wasn't it though? It yeah. really was. It was yeah. just. Yeah, Laura kept. Are you guys hungry yet? <laughs> <laughs> bringing out snacks for us. Yeah. <laughs> But guys... Yeah, just a minute. Hey, look at this. <laughs> <laughs> Dinner's ready, but we're looking at bow staves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mom, it was it. it was incredible, and seeing like all these materials that I haven't had a chance to play in with, play with for so long, like river cane. <clears throat> oh yeah. I was not expecting all those bundles of river cane, though I should have known a bowyer from the south is going to be bringing up river cane. It was, I don't know, a decade or more since the last time I had a chance to play with. River you can work with that material, yeah. And it was such a fun experience. And then you start showing me your techniques with it. Yeah. And your understanding. Pardon me, I'm burping up a ginger beer there. <laughs> um, and then you brought out, what, what type of bamboo was it again? The yellow bamboo? I that's That was a piece of yellow grove bamboo from our place in West Virginia, yeah. And it had just a couple little dog leg bends here and there. You know, okay, I'm going to take this Japanese pull saw yeah. snip 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 now use your knife like this and as soon as i started using my knife i went wait a second are we making like a a cup style atlatl yeah boy. Like, yep I'm like oh my god i've been wanting to do this for so long but i've never been able to find a piece of bamboo for the right shape and size this can be so fun and sure enough we were making cup instead of having a for those that know what an atlatl is a cup atlatl is instead of having a knock point you have a, a socket that the dart just that goes in the back of the dart. Exactly. You now have a cup that the back of the dart nests in. And that could be a socketed atlatl or a flat back, or it could be even just a long arrow knock style. Doesn't matter because it's just a cup. It's just a it's just like dropping yeah, it into a shot glass. Yeah. And it's gonna launch it off. Super easy. Very straightforward. For those that don't know what an atlatl is, it is basically the dart itself is an arrow on steroids, as Bob Perkins. I once love said. that term. Yeah. <clears throat> and the Adalal itself is a throwing device that basically extends the length of your arm, giving you more velocity and more leverage and more power by through that to send that dart many yards away. Um, I think the furthest I've ever seen one fly uh, accurately was uh, was 200 feet, which was mind-boggling to me. Uh, and you were talking about 80 yards and all these distances. That... Right. Without fletching, with a dart, you know, the good, uh, decent forward center of balance on yep. that thing. No fletching, I could probably throw in a football field mm-hmm. that much trouble, actually. Which is effectively the lethal range of a muzzle loader. <laughs> we still need to hit it, but it's, got, <laughs> it's still it's got the energy to, to put down any large game, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, and then you got guys like uh, Ryan Gill who went out and proved that with bison hunting with not allowed in Texas. A couple I years saw back. that video. It was incredible. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. Yeah quite doable they're they're such a functional weapon that they were being used all the way up into european contact with first nations in canada and down in mexico and much of south america they were still being used well into the conquest age of the conquistadors okay so to see an atlatl for me it's almost like an old hat like oh yeah this is something i've known for again 21 years i've been playing with those damn things and then today you showed me like seven different things that made my brain crack for a second and be like, wait a second. There's a lot of nuance in a system if you definitely dive deep enough, right? 
the 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 four pound bending weight of yeah. and the springboard effect of the dart in comparison to the yeah. thrower. My my analytical engineering background mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a, a piece of my biography is I spent over eighteen years in research and development. Right. With a large chemical company, mm. and what I produced wasn't car doors or tires or widgets. I produced a notebook. That was my huh. product. I wrote down detailed documentation from experiments in enough detail that they could be reproduced and defended in a court of law. So my mind works in, okay, this is a dart. How do I teach it, for one thing? Yeah. And teaching stuff, uh, and one of the reasons I so enjoy teaching stuff is because it pushes me to know it. It's so much better so I can be prepared for, or if I get caught flat-footed or whatever, I, I got, I'm, I'm not... I can't rest till I go dig up that answer. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it has, I want to do it with numbers, but then I also want to bring it back to the primitive um, approach where today I showed you, I'm like, if you reach out to either end, mm-hmm. you can readily find the center of this dart. Yep. If you take half of that, divide that in half again, you can just eyeball it. Yep. That's 25% forward of center. Divide that again, now you're 12.5% forward of center, and that's a good working place for the balance of yeah. a dart in free flight or an aero shaft. Mm-hmm. And this um, this dart is a little bit short of that balance. So let's add some mass to the nose. Yeah. In this case, we just used a tape, like yep. a, a grip tape. Yep. And, and I showed you, I showed you a unique, unique tape where you that can was group a, it. Yeah. And, and I, you just raise the spool up and down and whatever is on one side of the loop or the other side of the loop, uh, the, uh, the sag and the tape, in just a moment, you determine how much mass you need to add to that ta- tip yeah. with the tape to bring that balance to that mark. Yeah, and I was so, and yeah. I, from there. I was like, okay, if I wanted to put a point on here, and then you like my brain immediately went, okay, how can I take that piece of tape, cut it right off, weigh it, and then I know how much my points have to be. And you're like, or no, you don't have to do that. <laughs> or you just make the point slightly heavier and then nap it back until it balances. Yeah, a, a lot of my, uh, well, when I figured this stuff out, uh, you could weigh it. Mm-hmm. What's that require? A scale. Yep. Some type of precise device. If you got that, great. If, you, if you're in a bush somewhere, you don't have a scale typically mm-hmm. in your whatever loincloth you're wearing, right? <laughs> you still don't have pockets. That's annoying, but that's another story. So <laughs> you, just need to, you just need to rebalance the shaft. Yep. To that balance point. Mm-hmm. So I typically take a point that I've napped, stick it in the end. I want it the same weight because I'm going to add a little weight with sinew yep. to lock that on. Glue it in and then check the balance point. And if it's ideally a little heavy, mm-hmm. I'll go ahead and touch up that point with pressure flaking and bring that balance point right back to where it was when I shot it for practice and I was yeah. happy with it. Then that thing goes in a quiver. I never have to shoot it again. I know when I pull it out, that's an undamaged blade. Yep. It's still a super sharp blade, and the first time I loose it out of the bow, it's going to fly accurate. Yeah, it's it's, it's, there. it's an original, <clears throat> ancient converter point system. Remember, converter points came out with the little inserts in the in the aluminum tubing, and you could unscrew the field point, screw in a, yep. a rod head, or you could screw in a, a judo point or a blunt. Yep, same thing. Mm-hmm. This is the same thing. And this is not even getting into like the idea of like four shafts and everything else. This is just straight up arrow no, yeah, projectile no. point. Well, at least right on arrows, I've never done a four shaft uh, that, yeah. that's friction fit. I'm like, I'm going to sacrifice that arrow. Part yeah. of the thing too is I want to keep it simple. Yeah. And um, and I want that good solid integrity of that front end of that shaft mm-hmm. uh, for 
for making the impact in the kill. Definitely. And uh, if someone wants to use inserts or four shafts on them, you know, knock yourself out. The technology's proven it's only 60,000 years plus been around. But I just, yeah. it's not the style I've adopted and, yeah. or that I've used. Totally. But, um, yeah, there's, there's meat in the freezer from this activity, you know, at my house. So <laughs> it works. You know, I've proven it again. And it's, and it's this that I find, like, the most fascinating about the two of you. So tracking is the arguably the oldest science known to humankind. It is you look at a subject, you put you postulate a hypothesis, you prove it by checking out what's further down the path, and you confirm whether it's a rhino or you confirm that it was actually a gazelle that you were just really really blind and didn't see what that track really was. Right. What you're doing with experimental archaeology, which is in in essence the same word as the definition of bushcraft, you're also tracking. And through that, you're also committing a scientific hypothesis and testing those theories until it compl- either confirms your data or fails spectacularly and you learn from it either way. Totally. You're both freaking bush scientists and you're <laughs> bush scientist power couple. I don't couple. think I've been called that before. I have never thought of it that way. I'm a bush scientist. Huh? I've never thought of it that way. This is like... That's wild. What I find so fascinating about you two as individuals, but also as a couple, is like there's this Bush scientist power couple that live down West Virginia and Ohio and sometimes South Africa, and they carry two different passions, but are following the exact same methodology to get their results. There, you are. You are Old a brilliant man, Caleb. <laughs> I have I never ever heard anybody say that or describe that or think that way before. Now I'm sitting here going, huh, I'll be darned. Like we describe tracking and nature awareness as, as Chris, our good friend Chris sitting there checking his phone right now, learning nature's language or relearning <laughs> nature's language. It is a language and it is a, and it is a reading form, but it is also... What science is, is a language. Mathematics is a language. Chemistry is a language. These are old languages that are universal. And so whether it's, you know, somebody from the Dobijahansi Nation in the Kalahari or Australian Indigenous people from the Arnhem Land region or Ojibwe's from Central Ontario or Sami from Sweden or Scottish Gale Celts, there's a universality to this. That is a universal language that is, you could call bushcraft, you can call science, you can call tracking or nature awareness, whatever other term you want to use. And Lord knows I love my semantics and my and my euphemisms and all my different ways to describe words and describe things. It is all at the end of the day language. Yeah. You I agree are with you. You're linguists and you're speakers of a language. Said, yeah. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, you nailed it. That is the truth. Unlike the darts I threw today, I definitely did not nail those. I was <laughs> I was recording it again and again with my phone to try and show Cal when you guys got back from your paddle, and I was just slaughtering my my arm throwing those darts. I was precise, but I could not get that precision. You know the classic like if all the if all the bullets go to the top right, left corner of the target, move to the bottom right, uh, and you can basically fire for effect from there until you hit bullseye. I couldn't do that. My arms just kept making me go right to the left and down. <laughs> Is that important? I mean, wouldn't it have been a whole bunch of you aiming at a woolly mammoth? At I one mean, point, how yes. Important but is the it being that accurate. Two degree, two degree, yeah. When we get back to the ancient, like the Paleo-American period, but the atlatl was being used all the way up into contact, and we were hunting deer, elk, mm-hmm. and buffalo, and even moose with them. Small and small. And so, yeah, that's yeah. where I'm like trying to get myself to because, like, sadly, 
I don't know why, but I haven't been able to find a mammoth yet in my backyard. Oh, well. But I find deer eating my apple tree all the time. So one day. So, okay. If we get to spend some more time together, I can look at your technique and maybe make some suggestions. I have an idea what's going on, but I didn't, For sure. I didn't want you to do it. So. But just being able to throw those darts and seeing them consistently hit the same spot. So you have consistency, but not accuracy. Exactly. I, yeah. I can't get that fire for effect to move. Tr- you know, the, like you tr- you slowly crawl your you shot. you got potential, right. brother. Keep hanging. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so used to my wonky dogwood shaft darts that are just like um, big higgly piggly. No, these river cane darts will spoil you. They are beautiful. I cannot. They'll spoil you. Yeah. I cannot. Like one day I'm going to get river cane roots brought into my backyard. I'm going to get them to a big controlled cistern or something so they don't go invasive yes. on anybody. Well, that's the thing is like, we know that River King grew in Ontario at one point. How far back is the question? Because we find there's a pollen analysis in the Northern Shore of Lake Ontario showing River King pollen samples. Oh, wow. So we know it was here 3,500, 5,000 years ago. The question is, was it here 300 years ago at contact in the region? And so was, was it pushed back during the mini ice age of the 1500s into the 1800s was it around before that was it here after that did the cattle eradicate like they did down in the american southeast we we don't know so how would you get river cane pollen does that stuff actually seed like every hundred years or so like a bamboo i don't know i'm not quite sure how that all works i haven't had i've never heard of a pollen from a river cane right like that's what i from what i know they they're rhizomal growth like any other grass but then most grasses also have they often seed right yeah so So i'm assuming they must have dropped pollen of some sort because they found the pollen sample i just don't know how that all works because it's such an i told sandy just last week or two weeks ago i said i cannot wait for someone to come out with a pocket dna mod uh you know handheld dna uh device like a star trek tricorder yeah 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 i want one yes because we're going to be looking over another pile of crap somewhere and like i think it's fox no i think it's coyote and (laughs) i'm like wait a second here let me put a sample in (laughs) all right it's fox it's mine i got that one you know But that's the ultimate at the moment is let's could get DNA run on it, right? So, yeah, yeah. I'm, and they they're yeah. getting really crazy with like there's a there, I think it's called Mossy Earth is the YouTube channel and they're a, an organization that's been rewilding Eurasia for the last like several years and they do these big projects of trying to like bring certain wildlife back to the ecology, fix the ecosystem in places like I think it was in uh, a part of Greece. They found this huge old quarry. They bought the entire quarry that had been flooded, and then they began to rewild it by breaking down the shoreline to actually be a gradual slope. slope. Okay. And then they started finding all these birds and all these animals coming back to this ecosystem. They were taking water sample DNA tests that can confirm all the species that were in that water. Oh, sort of like checking the the sewage line coming from a city to see how much... um... COVID-19's in it? Exactly. Pretty much the same concept. Okay. And yeah, so they yeah, yeah. were going in and testing and they were coming back with like endangered species of turtles and Whoa. like fish species that were some native, some non-native, some invasive. And so that now they know those fish are in the waters. How can we manage that? How can we fix this? Well, I've never, that's wild. I'm yeah, glad I that, just heard about this tool. back in March and it's been blowing tool. my mind. And I'm like, we're there. So your scat tricorder it might be just right around the corner. Just a pocket DNA yeah, tool would be right. so handy right. some days. Yeah, yeah right. To settle this argument right now, right? <laughs> yeah, I won't be loved for that in <laughs> some cases. No, I just want some stock in that one. Yeah, right. That's going to sell. That's going to be that, a hot seller. Right? That kind of reminds me of like this, these old 
arguments I'd have with my father, and then I would pull up my phone and Google the answer, and he would get mad because the answer was too easy. Yes. What are you doing? That's what I was saying. Why are you saying that? Why would you do that? We were having a good conversation. Right, you just ruined it. So, but we were arguing. It was frustrating me. Let's just get the, the straight answer. is much more important than the answer. Yeah, sometimes. Yep. No respect for your elders. <laughs> my, my favorite moment was my dad, with my dad, was for my entire childhood, he talked about how he wanted to go on a pronghorn hunt. It's his bucket list animal. Okay. He wanted to do a pronghorn hunt. And he, at one point, he was the one that drove me. My mother and him drove me out to Wyoming to get my job when I was living out there because I couldn't get the money to fly me and all my equipment out there. We had to bring chainsaws and shovels yeah, and yeah. all of our stuff. So, and I don't drive. Uh, and my dad was like, we'll drive you. Me and your mother will treat you like a small vacation. We've always wanted to go out there together. Yeah, combo trip. Yeah. And the whole, the whole time... He's talking about these pronghorns out there. And I'm like excited because we're going to see these pronghorns out there. And he keeps talking about the pronghorns. And finally, when he was coming up on his 60th birthday, I booked a hunt in uh, northern Saskatchewan where there's pronghorn antelope. And I had the money, I had the finances, and I surprised him with a 60th. I'm like, next year we're going on a pronghorn hunt on your birthday, on your 61st birthday. COVID happened, didn't work out, couldn't get the hunt. Oh. But during that time, he started boasting about this pronghorn hunt. He goes, I just don't know how, I just didn't know that there's pronghorns in Saskatchewan. I thought they were up in the mountains in BC and stuff. I'm like, pronghorns are a flatland animal. He yeah, goes, the prairie. no, they're not. <laughs> they're, they're up in the mountains. I was like, dad, pronghorn antelope evolved to outrun the cheetah, but they can't really jump and climb very well. That's why they get stuck in fences in Wyoming. We were talking about that when we were out there. That made no sense to me then. It doesn't make sense any, any sense to me now. And he's driving his Dodge Ram. And we're driving out to Ottawa to visit my mom's family. And he just keeps talking about the pronghorns are these giant sheep. And he points at the bighorn logo on his truck. And he goes, that's a pronghorn right there. They're a freaking mountain goat. Uh-oh. And I went, Dad, that's a bighorn sheep. He goes, no, that's a pronghorn. And I pulled out my phone and I Googled and I showed him a pronghorn antelope. And he goes... Well, I want to hunt one of those too, but that's not what I want to oh hunt. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. <laughs> like, well, at least we got the right hunt still. What oh we my have God. here is a failure. My <laughs> gut was sinking like, oh God, I've or this like a $3,000 down payment. This is, oh my God, oh my God. Yeah. But anyways, those kinds of miscommunications and the debates of Google and tracking devices and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Or uh, DNA tracking devices and all that. It's such a strange, strange subject matter. But it's kind of fun. Did he get to go after a big horse? No. Sadly, before COVID ended, he yeah. passed away. So yeah. we got the down payment back before then yeah. because they, they refunded us. They you were know, like, we the, can't do the this. Big, the most strongest part of that story to me is yeah. how much you loved your dad. Yeah. I really did. And what you did. I still do. What you were trying to do to gift back to him. That's a beautiful thing. Well, he took me, like, we talk about, like, hunting and the hunter's journey and everything, like, my dad was what got me out hunting. My dad, the three ways that we could socialize and get to know each other was golfing, hunting, and movies. And I hate golfing. <laughs> Absolutely hate golfing. And so the two ways we could socialize was hunting and movies. And so he made me a major cinephile and he made me obsessed with hunting. Since I was a small kid, like the earliest meal I remember eating was wild duck, like mallard and teal, and snapping turtle that him and my grandfather had caught. All three? All three in one meal. Wow, wow like you're rich. In our household, yeah, we felt rich for that. It was absolutely incredible. So it was, it's, it's really fun to sit with people who are 
from his age bracket that have those passions of hunting and being out on the land and doing those things as someone who's from a younger generation sitting with you guys and hearing these stories of traveling in Africa and seeing a white rhino and his baby and your experiences through the years of playing with bows and figuring out the nuances of the wood and showing us these 32 bow stays was it that you got out of the one trunk no oh, it was a hundred year old yeah. osage tree yeah oh not oak yes osage oh my yeah, gosh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes 32 staves in total from the I, one i counted they weren't all premium staves <laughs> yeah. of course but i i well, we counted them count, out. i stopped counting at 100 rings so it was it was older than big, that old it wasn't the only one it was a whole fence row that had been left untouched yeah one after the other yeah. after the other i'm getting low on staves i'm going to go back in there and say hey uh yeah and the, we've, we've been giving this guy he's that's a tangent story but it's um, a private landowner really cool who, project um, is yeah. really working hard to take his land and to remove invasive species mm-hmm. and he has a 500 year plan to return it back to uh, what it used to be. Pre-Columbian ecosystem. He's an amazing guy. Yeah. An amazing project. But he uh, considers the Osage to be invasive. It so was. They brought it in their planted yeah. for fence rows. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we're, he's slowly removing them, but he's also very kind about supporting um, bushcraft. Yeah. Uh, in this case, he knows. And, and he actually invited us to do a... Uh, he invited Cal to do a bow class there and that benefited some of the people there who are working some of his caretakers yeah so yeah so they got scholarships right he has those staves and you're he was using river cane that you were bringing him as like markers of his trees yeah so he's been planting uh seedlings uh oaks is one of his uh, high focuses yep and he's got a lot of oak seedlings coming up and he needed to uh, mark them so they wouldn't mow them down right and he commented one of our earlier visits there that, you know, stakes are expensive. I said, I can bring you river cane stalks. Yeah. He goes, that would be nice. And I've been bringing him river cane. And just recently, his need, he, I finally I said, could you just tell me how many? 700. Oh, he wanted. <laughs> and so last. Threw 700 out there. Just seven. Yeah. No just problem. Yeah. And That's so right. last weekend, we'll we that. had a little bit of time at, in yeah. West Virginia where these colonies are at. And, and uh, we brought him 100 yeah. right. on that, on that weekend. And them. we have them. Yeah, they're growing there. It's just a matter of when we can be there and harvest Cut them. Cut them and... down, take off the little side pieces. But yeah, he, he was branches. he was even offering to pay me yeah, for, and I'm yeah. like, this this was fun. I said I said, Dave, have you ever heard of the power principle? It's like a maybe. What's that? And I said, there's basically three ways, basic ways to get someone else to do something you want them to do. Right. One of them is by force. Mm-hmm. We would call that slavery. Yeah. You know, you pick that cotton, or I'm gonna beat you. Or whatever, cool. right? Yeah. And the other one is by agreement. You you uh, stamp that widget. I'll pay you twelve fifty an hour. Right. And time and a half after forty hours. And the third one is shared vision. Mm. I said, Dave, we love what you're doing with the land. Yeah. We want to support it. It's we want to share in your vision. I said, as long as you know, it's just a matter of time to get out. I said, I'll I'll go cut, collect, bundle, and give you the river cane. Yeah. Don't worry about paying for it. I didn't happen to think. I'm like, well, you know, you gave me a hundred year old Osage tree. I'm like, I think the trade has been lopsided on my side. I'm doing way better than you are. You know, let me yeah. keep bringing you river canes. <laughs> but he's got he's got oodles of, you know, hundred year old Osages and old fence rows. Because they're using them to block in the wild. They're using them as like fencing for they livestock did. and stuff. They did. Yeah. And they they've been left Very common in the state. And they've been left grown. And I, I went down there and he said, Well, I have this row here and then this. I'm like, I'm looking at this going, Oh my God. 
there's tons and tons of Osage, bow staves. Yeah. Long, clean, straight bow staves. I brought those up here, and everybody's going, you got Osage? And I'm like, <laughs> I didn't realize it was such a prized commodity up here, you know? Yeah, the, the, the only region I've seen... <clears throat> that I've seen Osage Orange growing in Ontario is from the West Toronto down to Niagara, Escarpment. And you and, say it's all scrubby. And it's scrubby. Really? It's yeah, like... You can't. <clears throat> maybe five to six feet tall, then it's just starts to branch and twist, and it's... It's called it's, character wood. Yes. <laughs> you can make the snakiest bow, but the struggle with it is the fact that it's not from this climate. It just doesn't do... Same reason no, like totally. you... When you get to the southern half of the province, you see probably those big pine plantations as you're driving by in yeah. the, the main highways. Yeah. That's all Scots pine. Okay. And that Scots pine came over, ironically, from like, I believe, Austria to Norway was where it was being imported, not from Scotland. And then the Norway spruce that we have a lot of in Ontario came from Scotland. The names make no sense to me with these trees sometimes. The Scots pines were brought over because they're like, oh, they're fast growing. We can get straight lumber and we'll just plant them in straight hedgerows yep. and just get yep. all the pine we need. Industrialize it, yeah. And they fail. They are some of the scrubbiest top, weak trees. Their 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 wood, their lumber is almost absolute trash because it just oh. doesn't do well in this climate. That's and interesting. Yet they don't try to replace it. They just keep letting it seed and grow out more and become mm. a semi-invasive tree. My favorite moment with Scott's Pine was walking through Serpent Mountains Provincial, well, what was Serpent Mountains Provincial Park is now uh, my band takes care of it. It's the, uh, one of the northernmost documented burial mounds in ontario oh. and it's a, a serpentine mound not like the great it doesn't look like the great serpent mound of ohio okay, I was gonna say. but it's an actual burial mound system that some people say is a snake others including me hypothesize it might actually be eels because snakes move on the water left or right right mm -hmm. these mounds look like they're coming up and out of the water and back down into the water it looks more like your classic like sea dragon or sea yeah, yeah. serpent look Multiple which is homes. what an eel looks like when they're spawning, when they're or not yeah. spawning, when they're moving up the rapids back into the freshwater. Okay. And so there's a lot of different theories of what they might be, but I was in there back in 2012. We were trying to do some management on the property of dog strangling vine, which I'm not sure if you have it down in West Virginia. I've never heard of it. It's a very frustrating invasive species here. It's a vining, um, I believe it's part of the milkweed or vetch family. It has very similar leaf structures to them and very similar paws to a milkweed, but it overtakes. It's like, not as aggressive as kudzu, but somewhere oh, in that category. Anywhere near, it's going to be bad. <clears throat> yeah. And so we're doing decently at managing it by solarizing and burning and all that kind of stuff. Prescribed burns help it with a little bit. Sometimes if some seed survives, though, now you got carte blanche for that seed to grow in a perfectly oh, sterile environment. Yeah. But what was really entertaining was walking into this stupid Scots pine that I've hated since I was a kid and seeing it bent to the ground and killed by a eight-inch diameter cable of dog strangling <laughs> an invasive wow. killing an invasive for us yeah. right there as so, well i'll let it finish doing that job and then we'll solarize and burn it <laughs> this is pretty cool to see so i i really appreciate people that are doing that natural historic prehistoric or at least pre-contact restoration work from black oak savannah ecology to lombardi pine ecology work and loblolly yeah. pine and what that gentleman's doing down where you guys are that's like that's what needs to happen to get our ecosystem back into an equilibrium is what did it used to look like? How can we get it there faster? Right. Because like we were talking about river cane, the river cane break was one of the largest ecosystems in the American Southeast. A at lot. one time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's miles been... Miles and miles of it. 
and it was so drastically devastated by cattle and expansion and agriculture that the Cherokee Nation have effectively lost their basket-making yeah. culture because their material culture depended on using river cane split. Yeah. And it's just not where the Eastern Band Cherokee are anymore. So it's... Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I find really beautiful to see. Like, oh, you're growing river cane for the last several years on your properties? Actually, Washington? 25. 25 years. Wow. Yeah. It doesn't spread very fast. So no. We haven't worried. It's not, it, that's not been invasive. Yeah. Or, or uncontrollable. Yeah. Um, but. If I brought in some sort of Asian bamboo, I'm sure it would be more problematic, which is why I would love to bring in, again, talking about, keep going back to the river cane rant. But I yeah. love what you guys are doing down there, working with that gentleman, working on your properties. It, it's just so rewarding to see generations ahead of me thinking seven ger- generations ahead of them instead of in generations after them. It's It just makes me really happy that this is more than just my generation trying to do this stuff and more than the next generation's burden. Yes. We're, we're all working on it, and that's okay. something really, really beautiful. Yeah. So, yep. again, I'm just excited to be sitting here with you guys. This is freaking awesome. <laughs> so sandy recently you came home from a trip overseas to focus on trailing and tracking uh what was this all about where'd you go and what what did you guys get up to yeah um i have an addiction and uh <laughs> it started it's legal started a decade ago i know right it's expensive though man <laughs> You look at my closet and, you know, I'll, I'll go somewhere and they're like, wow, I love your jacket. And I'm like, finally, you know, 20 years of that jacket, it came back in fashion again. <laughs> so we make choices, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, I do. I have an addiction with uh, going to Africa. And uh, I first went there 10 years ago, South Africa specifically. Mm. And uh, I love returning. And part of me, you know, and people will say, well, where else are you going to go? You know, and I just don't go anywhere else too often I just keep going back uh, because it just it's so rare to be in a place where you're not the top dog and you can be in the bush and you can really feel in the air and in the sounds uh, just how alive things are and I love that so I know you can get that other places right sure but um, for me that's that's been where I go and uh, yeah yeah I go pretty much every year it's incredible. Like, I've only traveled some of the Americas. I have not gotten over the Atlantic or the Pacific yet. So, like, when I hear these stories of Africa, when I hear about the Big Five, when I hear about Cape yeah. Buffalo, when I hear about mm-hmm. leopards and leopard attacks of the Hadza people and everything like that, these are, and I'm sure part of it is like built on the stereotypes of like Darkest Africa documentaries way back in the right. '60s and stuff. I'm sure. But there is a primalcy of knowing you are, like you were saying, not the top of the food chain. You are right. not at the top of the ladder. You are surrounded by actual, genuine predators like African lions, like hyenas, all that. Marley's refusing to go to bed right now. <laughs> <laughs> we're laughing at the dog. What a face. He's just looking at Laura like, I'm not moving. This is comfortable. Leave me alone. He doesn't want to miss the podcast. No, nope. He's one of our biggest fans, I guess. <laughs> so all that like here in Ontario we have black bear mm-hmm. we've all tracked black bear we know that they're not that big of a threat as long as you know what you're doing around them mm-hmm. and that can be said about any wildlife but with a black bear it's 
pretty much straightforward. You leave them alone, they'll leave you alone, give them a good distance. They don't usually have an interest in you. Polar bear, yeah, they prey on humans. They will hunt humans. And if they see you, they will actually make a, a conscious decision, should I hunt it or not? And it's not a, should I hunt, not hunt it because it's dangerous? It's more of a, should I not hunt it because there's seal more recently nearby me? But they're not here where I live. The most dangerous animal we have around here is a moose. And yes, they are dangerous. We were talking about that earlier tonight during dinner. Yeah. But again, if you know what you're doing, they're pretty easy to manage. You see a Cape Buffalo the wrong way from the stories I hear. They will... Oh, Lordy. Yeah, Cape Buffalo you don't want to mess with. This is a huge animal with these very dangerous horns that come out, right? It's like a battering ram on their forehead and then pointy parts. Yeah, it, with <laughs> attitude. With major attitude. And when you move through the bush, if they see you, we were out there, um, we spent a day uh, where I, uh, I talked to Lee. I'm out there with Chrissy Lawrence and Lee Gutteridge, Chrissy of Original Wisdom and Lee Gutteridge of Major Guy Training. Mm. Super good friends of ours. I love them dearly, like family. Mm. And uh, we're out there, I'm out there with Lee and, and, you know, just four other people. And we are spending the day in the bush and we're walking carefully, you know, single line, quietly. Uh, following trails and just doing things and we get to this one point where you, you come across these riverbeds and it's winter when it's summer in yep. the northern hemisphere and it's winter which is great because the leaves are down and you can see into the bush you right. want to be able to see into the bush right. and uh, we're coming to a dry riverbed and actually it wasn't dry there's was water in it and we're working our way quietly down and we are following uh, some trails along that riverbed and you can get where the grass is over your head it's a little nerve-wracking and you mm. gotta really know how to trail and how to track and, and read your sign or just follow lee because he knows what the hell he's doing he's just good <laughs> i'm with lee i'm fine and uh he stops and so we stop and you only talk in whispers or you're, you know you're using hand signals and and we hear then movement and it's it's close and we just hold still and you're looking through all those reeds and you're looking for where you're hearing something and you're looking for that horizontal body right something moving horizontally yeah. through and we see that color that deep brown color and he makes the move you know the hand signals and we're moving back and we're moving up so we can look down and we get up just high enough climbing out of that, that river area where we can look down and there are two Cape Buffalo right in there. Oh. And that's the one thing you, I mean, you don't mess with a lot of things, but you do not mess with that. And we just hightailed it out because they have serious attitude. And one moment they're looking at you and the next moment they're charging. And uh, fortunately I have never experienced that charge, but yeah. we, we did, we backtrailed way out of there very, very quickly and safely. And it was a, uh, it was a moment, but like, but yeah, you have those moments here too. Yeah, like I've had moose charge me and I've had on one occasion a bison in Wyoming oh, yeah. kick up its feet at us and like get running as luckily we were about a hundred yards and we had a truck nearby. Nice. So we had the ability to hightail before you yeah. got close enough, but like there's a different level when it's a Cape Buffalo. There is. Like their their nickname is the Black Death. Yeah. Like they are just so dangerous. And like I heard they were transported to a freaking Australia. People took oh, that animal and put it into Australia for big game hunting. People are idiots. Yeah. Who the hell wants to That's put that in another... The um, continent that already yeah. makes everything want to kill you, let's put another thing that wants to kill you there. <laughs> right. just doesn't sound right. Right. 
Right. Right. Like that doesn't. That's like giving a. That's like giving a polar bear a flamethrower. What are you doing? This is a bad idea. <laughs> and you know, we've, I've walked a lot of miles in the bush and yeah. with a lot of over the years in different places from you know South Africa and Botswana and the Kalahari and and the Elka Vanga Delta and. Um, it's rare, you know, we don't run into Cape Buffalo every single day. Yeah. That was a rare moment. And the only time I think we've run into them, but it happens. But when you know the landscape and you know the animals and you can read those behaviors, and that's why you're with guides who have that experience mm-hmm. and they're willing to teach it to you. You you know, if you're here in the U.S., you can pretty much read those bear and you, you know their behavior, you know the behavior of moose and you know mm-hmm. what to do. And that's the difference between... Um, doing things intelligently and doing something random. You don't want to yeah. be just out there random messing yeah. around with these animals. They deserve your respect. Definitely. Yeah. When I was on my first trip to Colombia, uh, we went into a similar area that I was in this time near Leticia, Amazonas. Mm. Um, we were with Luis and Alberto and all these awesome people that are connected through my good friend, Joe Flowers from Bushcraft Global, who connected that whole project for us. Um, and we were looking for footage of anacondas and fertilizers and dangerous animals we wanted to get that camera shot of a jaguar growling kind of stuff yeah i've seen the tracks (sighs) we saw (laughs) one track only one track we just saw the one it was just the back of the heel you could see the three lobes yes but it was way too chunky to be a puma Ah, you know like it was more stocky shaped yeah they're not as like slender as a puma track okay and sure enough, they're like, yeah, that's a Jaguar. But that's from like yeah. three weeks ago. We're in the dry season. The okay. tracks just lasted. I'm like, oh, okay. I so they're not around? Or they're like, no, there's not around. I saw the tracks in Belize. Spent oh, cool. time there. I've been there a couple times. And we were with a tracker who was well known from the area. And he was fantastic. Mm. And he was showing us the tracks. I was really hoping we'd get to see one. Yeah. And didn't. Which uh, is something you earn, right? Yeah. Through time. Exactly. So that was fine. but. Uh, and yeah. so we're, we're asking. The environment. Al- yeah. We were asking Alberto all these questions like, Hey, like, are there fertilants around? Like we're trying to get that, that footage for this video project for this documentary we're working on. We want to get that, that exciting, exhilarating snake strikes the camera kind of moment, whether it's an anaconda or a venomous snake, doesn't matter. Or a jaguar growling or even an ocelot growling something. Something, But all we had seen so far was like a spider and a bunch of freshwater shrimp and a toucan a kilometer and a half away. What's what, (laughs) What dangerous stuff? And Alberto basically said, like, well, you guys seem really afraid down here. What do you have up there that's so dangerous? And me and my buddy were like, well, well not much. And he goes, well, you, don't you have wolves? And I'm like, yeah, but wolves aren't dangerous to humans. And in Ontario and Canada, the wolf is one of the most harmless predators to have to ever deal with. Coyotes are more problematic than a wolf. And he goes, okay, well, what about bear? I'm like, well, all we got is black bear where we are. And as long as you know what you're doing, they really do have not have any interest in you. And he's like, well, what do you guys worry about in the bush then? We're like, moose. And, of course, we're going through a translator who has to explain what a moose is. Mm. And his response back is, you're afraid of a deer? (laughs) And I was like, you don't understand. (laughs) It's not a deer. And so I had to get up on the the sandy floor of the Maloka and trace the shape of a bull moose. And he's staring at it going, that's as big as a horse. like, bigger, heavier. And in the conditions they're in, faster. They can run through a muskeg. They literally can lift. They're, they they evolve for the muskeg, which is like that big mossy yep. like swamp lands you see up around here where we are. Mm-hmm. Their hoof can pass their ear to be able to reach up and get through the moss or the deep snow yeah. to move through. 
They have, you know how horses have those flank twitching uh, tendons? Yes, I do. So do moose to drive off the black flies and the mosquitoes. Those ears that we were talking about earlier, how they evolve with their antlers to help, you know, magnify the sound of the cow moose when they're bleeding in, in estrus. All this stuff has evolved this animal to be a freaking tank in the northern boreal forest. It's a giant deer, yes. Uncle it, yeah, but... But it's more like a Clydesdale from hell. Yeah. And a like, Clydesdale from hell. And he was like staring at us after like showing him photos and stuff that we found because we had a little bit of reception where we were in, the, in that village. And we we're showing him photos of them compared to trucks and all this stuff. And the words out of his mouth were, I do not want to go to this place. <laughs> and it was like, fair. That is, that is fair. If you, like, that's where like I started to realize maybe my like preconceived notions of darkest africa concepts of like the hippos are going to just charge my truck every time we drive around the rhinos are going to try to kill me everywhere i go lions are behind every bush and then i hear stories from friends who go over they're like no i i had a my my, a good friend of mine their honeymoon was in kenya Mm -hmm. and his wife left the 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 campsite that they were in that had an acacia bush thorn uh palisade yeah and she left to use the washroom, and he was behind her, but she didn't have her contact lenses or glasses in, and she's trying to figure out why there's a tree on the trail, while her husband, her newlywed husband, less than 10 yards behind her, is trying to, like, process the fact that his wife is staring down a bull elephant. Whoa. And the bull elephant then moves off the trail... And she looks back and goes, that was weird, and keeps on walking because she couldn't see that it was a freaking elephant. Holy smokes. And I hear those stories and go, maybe I wasn't wrong with these stories of, like, Cape Buffalo and all this stuff. But when when it comes, like, again, we talked about earlier the the history of, like, tracking is a science, and it's the oldest science. Mm -hmm. This is where that science was developed, like, figured out, developed, and then perfected into an actual science. Yes. Like where it's like detailed understanding. When they go and look at the sand and the dirt around the camp or around the village, it's reading the newspaper every you do, morning. You read the newspaper. It's the first thing we do every morning. It's incredible. And the and the substrate there in certain parts is amazing where you can literally put your hand in the substrate in the soil and lift it and see your fingerprints. Every oh, powder. single like, a lot of it's a powder. Like almost talcum. Oh, and yeah. it's like no wow. wonder. We're, that's where tracking started. Started, or it, and then I'm trying to work with these people today out here in leaf debris, pine needle, and duff, and they're feeling bad. And I'm like, no, no, you're doing great. You're doing great. You're not going to see. You know, this isn't about clear print track ID, right? This yeah. is about reading your landscape and understanding how it what communicates to you. And yes, over here, you're reading fingerprints. I want to share a story from our my first trip over there. Yeah, sure. When that... Lee took us to uh, took us to some local villages, mm. and uh, they they were like they were the caretakers over some of this territory. Anyway, uh, it struck me that uh, many of these most of these houses had a small um, two foot three foot fence around them. Right. And a lot of these yard areas there wasn't vegetation in it, but they would be raked. Almost like uh, the Japanese rock garden stuff. Yeah, like the Zen and gardens. The, and the, the women meticulous. would keep the house all day. They were meticulously raked. All these lines across the yard, right? And I commented to Lee about that. And I said, well, there's a lot of work put into raking these yards. I said, and there's, you know, there's no vegetation there. I said, I don't, 
Is it is it a status thing? You know, what's going on here? He said, oh, well, two things. <laughs> so one is a better kept house. Uh, the woman is much, uh, shows her, her, her housekeeping skills and, and, skills and whatnot. It's a matter of pride. Yeah. A matter, like, of pride. Really a matter of pride. There's a practical Respect. application. Right. He said, the woman it keeps her yard rake so clean. She has kids. She gets up in the morning. She steps out on the stoop. At a glance, she can tell if a snake has come through that yard in that sand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She steps out and reads the newspaper and then resets the newspaper. Largely. Like, a, like an Etch-A-Sketch. Yeah, sort like of like safety. Yeah. Because those lines, that clean-kept yard, any disturbance to her eye pops. Yeah. She can see if baboons or vervet monkeys have gotten inside the fence. Or, you see, a lot of people have Mambas batteries or... with uh, solar cells and, and elect- hot wire yeah. to, to keep animals out of their space. Right. But that struck me, and I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, they got cobras over here, and they got, oh, they got uh, Mambas, puff adders. They, puff got, adders. they got stuff that is no <clears throat> joke. There's like 10-step snakes over there. Yeah. You get bit in 10 steps. Mambas, yeah, yeah. So that struck me that, you know, it, it seemed like a social thing or whatever, but there's a practical aspect to tracking and a lot of the safety and awareness, you know, of your own space. So if only we could justify the freaking lawn care industry in North America to the, to the same <laughs> oh, level. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, I don't want to go there. Let's no, talk about something fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, that is like a level, a level of. Bush savvy, well, like the the, the the raking of the of the yards is such a bush savvy security blanket of you know exactly what happened the night before in that yard. You know if there's a snake. You know if yeah, a, yeah. if a if a monkey's messing with your stuff. You know if your kids snuck out. Oh, that's true. Like you know all that the, just <laughs> yeah. by getting up in the morning with your coffee and just looking at the dirt. And, and, and it's a community, but wildlife still moves through it. Of course, you know it's. It's not an exclusion zone, so they no. have to live in live in a balance or harmony with dealing with those threats, and, and it's not just Cape Buffalo. Wow. Yeah, so, there's a. There, yeah. That's like what fascinates me about Africa, from from North Africa with Libya and Egypt, all the way down to South Africa and East mm-hmm. and West. Like, there's so much of human and proto-human heritage there. Oh, that like yeah, Olduvai Gorge alone. Oh wow! Yeah. Things like that. The the, the Griffin vultures I'm gonna, are in there. I'm going to invite you to put on your bucket list to go to the World Heritage Site outside of Johannesburg, the birthplace of humankind. Oh man! Uh, they, Cr- it's called the Crater, crater of Humankind. Where the yes, oldest, yes. Where Leakey's found the oldest humanoid fossils down in the caves, and you can go down there. Wow! And you put on a helmet, and you go down there, and they'll give you a whole tour. And it's um, their displays are staggering. Just the mm-hmm. timeline. Just to be in that of humanoid space. evolving in that landscape, it's yeah. like that's the kind of stuff that is on that's already on my list. And one of the other things I love is that we're connected with some folks, um, a professor from the university there, Tim, Forsberg. and uh, yeah, and then some some folks, some of it's private property. Got to get permission to go on, but the paintings in the cave walls, the wall art, yeah. That, oh that, my gosh are just you know it takes you through the history of these people and the next wave of people come through and put their history on there too and the next wave and and to have somebody with you who can read that and to stand there and turn around and uh, and he's talking about the ceremonies that took place and how they know and 
and to stand there and just look out over that landscape that hasn't changed. I mean, we continually walk that landscape in the bush and we're picking up stone tools that have laid there for Forever. thousands of years and we're holding them and no one has touched them since then. They're just laying that exact same spot. Nothing's worn down, nothing really has changed and to be able to, to walk and, and just feel it and just the you ancientness know, let is that so staggering, yeah. soak in is just I don't know it's epic it's just the time there, there's so humbling there's moments of that that happen here in Canada and in mm -hmm. North America but like it's kind of like when we talk about like an old house in New England and then you go to old England right. and you see <laughs> 700 year old buildings yeah and it's like okay like there's a different layer of depth of history here like I've been down, we're, we're near where I live. We have petroglyphs, mm -hmm. actual like carved into the rock petroglyphs mm -hmm. that are mm -hmm. literally thousands of years old that were found in the fifties by guys that were harvesting peat moss for the agriculture industry and the coal industry. Wow. Huh. And they were just rolling moss back, and they found all these petroglyphs left by ancient initial like Getty Anishinaabe, like old people, of like our cultural heroes all the way to like a woman's vulva. That has a spring in the rock leaking out of it, showing like womanhood wow. and like life giving waters coming from like that. And then I've been down to like Moab, Utah, where there's the Indian writing on the rock walls that in go there. up like 90 feet, 100 feet. Mm -hmm. my, my first day in Colorado, near Basin, Colorado, I jumped out of our Polaris Ranger side by side and stabbed myself in the foot on a razor sharp green shirt Anasazi arrowhead. Oh my gosh. That stabbed That's me way to find through my boot, like yeah. right to the side of my, the sidewall of my boot into the instep of my soul and drew blood. And the last time it would have drawn blood was yeah. 2000 years ago. Who knows? Like Fremont, Fremont, basket maker society cultures or complexes. But then you go to Africa and you have freaking Alduan choppers that are like 1.3 right. million years old. Like, there's yeah. a there's a different layer of like the depth of humanity there, and of the earth. We were yeah. just showing us uh, this rock that was three point two, three point four billion years old. It's the oldest rock on earth. It's called greenstone. Yeah, and and he's telling us about that, and I'm holding a piece of it in my hand. Uh, it's just <clears> ancient, <throat> such an ancient place, which is why I keep going back. Yeah, I uh, I haven't. I can't even wrap my, my brain, my heart around it. I'm just trying to with each visit and it just gets deeper and, and more incredible each time. Yeah. So yeah, I think I'll probably go back as long as I live. It, it's, and I can't even fault you for that. It's a place that I've wanted to go to since I was a kid, yeah. even before the Lion King movie. But, <laughs> but especially after the we Lion King movie. We can sing it with you. We'll <laughs> <laughs> but like, to see that and to see like where our ancestors mm -hmm. frankly faced off with some of the most dangerous animals in the world. And we evolved into this thriving species that now is talking onto a microphone I know. that's wired to a, a freaking phone. And who knows who's <clears throat> listening to us right now and where they're listening to us from. Well, that, like, we're at, we're at 270 plus thousand plays now. Oh my God. And we're dude. apparently in the top 2% of all mm -hmm. of our category podcasts. I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> it sounds great. It sounds impressive. It means you have room for improvement. Yeah, yeah right? Yeah. 
I'm like, we were joking earlier, like we keep it, we keep the podcast kind of janky because it keeps yeah. us humble and it keeps us kind of having fun with it. But also we have audience that prefer it that way. We've had them be like, why are you trying to sound so clean? Oh yeah. They just want to do that. And it's personal then. Yeah. When I hear is... you do your podcast, I feel like we're just, chat- we're just talking. Yeah. We're just friends. Yeah. Hanging out. Yeah. It's, it's fun. Good time. But like we're doing this after surviving like Pleistocene hyenas. That were like the size of African lions. And well, free they were the size of Atlas lions, to be frank. Hmm. There there was bears in Africa at that time. The 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 zebra had not even moved fully over from Europe. Or sorry, uh, from North America. Yeah, they were here. Because yeah. they the, the zebra is a descendant of the of the horse, which was an ancestor mm-hmm. ancestral relative of the tapir, which started in South America. Mm-hmm. Right. And they eventually moved over to Africa and evolved into the modern day zebra or zebra. Mm-hmm. How do you say it? Uh, <laughs> Americans say zebra. So then, if you go to South Africa, you go to Africa and you don't want to sound like an idiot, like an idiot, say zebra. Yeah. It's really pronounced zebra. Well, that's, there's that, uh, there's that, uh, oh, what's his name? And they're black with white stripes. Just saying. Yes. So there's a, another hint for you. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure he he took over um, the Daily Show after John Stewart, um, and he's from South Africa. Oh yeah, oh I can Trevor see his Noah. Face. My Trevor, brain is yeah, so fried Trevor's from the day. Great. Yeah, he his joke of like <laughs> is her name Debra, the lady in the office. No, it's Deborah. <laughs> and it's like okay, Zebra makes sense now to my brain. I heard that. That's good. So like that, like that that alone, like we were evolving in this landscape mm-hmm. when that animal hadn't even arrived and evolved into that animal yet. Yeah, like. The short-faced bear had not let brown bears into North America yet when we were turning into humans. Wow. Like, ancient stuff yeah. was happening when we were just figuring out how to throw a rock. Yeah. And that rock turned into... The, I, I run a class here and there for, like, different events, different... Uh, like, when Harvest Gathering was running, I think it still is running, I think it just celebrated its 10th year last year. Uh, and then other events all over Ontario. One of my classes is called The History of Throwing Rocks. Mm-hmm. And it starts off with Homo habilis and all those beings chucking rocks at lions and hyenas to drive them all to kill. Mm-hmm. One of those rocks cracks and it's now a sharp edge. They can break a bone open and get that marrow out of. Right. And so now we're launching nuclear weapons, which are made of uranium rock. Yeah. And everything in between. Lead is a type <laughs> of rock. Like bullets are rocks. Everything that we've yeah. ever done is just Take throwing rock. rocks more efficiently, faster, never, further. That's a, that's a long yeah, way it to look is. At I it. haven't yeah. thought of it that way either. That's, it's but that's, it's yeah. insane, but it's what it is. It's like just... we are just throwing rocks still. <laughs> oh gosh. We're just very good at it now because we can throw it from one continent to the other and hope to God we don't oh, wipe out everybody gosh. with World War Three. Yeah. <laughs> but that is what it is, and mm-hmm. that was the place we were doing it at. And at the same time, evolving this science of tracking, evolving the science of what we now call bushcraft and botany and herbalism and everything started in that landscape and then just spread into Eurasia, into Australia, uh, Australasia, into the Americas, everywhere. We, we now populate every continent in the world, including Antarctica, which even the bears didn't get to, which is why it's called Antarctica. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, okay, I get yeah. it now. Yeah. Antarctic. I'm heading down there in November. Yeah? Yeah, I'm going to go for three weeks because I'm is... really looking forward to it. Gonna yes, get, I, I agree with you. Badass. That is. I'm excited. That I'm, makes you I'm the second excited. person on our podcast now that is being going oh, really? to Antarctica. Yeah, we had. Um... I haven't gone yet, but it's, yeah. uh, it's coming soon. Yeah. 
we we've done one episode on Antarctica when we we're talking about the Franklin, uh, not the Franklin expedition. Sorry, Shackleton. Oh God, I love that whole story. That episode that oh Ryan did was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Still endurance, one of my favorites. The endurance, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, I can't wait. I can't wait. Right. Found it. Yeah, I get yeah. to go to uh, South Georgia Island, the Falklands, oh, and Antarctica, and uh, I can't wait. I get to see this is gravesite. But mm-hmm. one of the hikes we get to do is to the waterfall that he climbed down to get to the whaling station. No way. Once they hiked across the South Georgia yeah, Island. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't what wait to stand at the base of that waterfall. I'm oh just, that's going to be for me. A I didn't know you were going to do that. That's special awesome. moment. Yeah, that is so, getting teary you're going down tracking that? I'm going to do tracking anyway, but, but in a nutshell, uh, I'm a school teacher. Yep. That's my, that's my trade. Yep. And, um, I was selected by National Geographic and Lindwald Expeditions. Ooh. And together they sponsor 50 teachers from the United States, Canada and surrounding territories. And they select those teachers to basically um, be fellows. So I'm a Grubner mm. Teacher Fellow. And basically what that means is I have a two-year commitment where I will be... They send teachers on an expedition. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, selected for Antarctica, which was top of my list. I'm oh my super, God. super excited. You didn't know about this, huh? Not at all. Yeah, this so I'll, so I'll cool. be going down I know you were there. a school teacher, but I'll I didn't be, know about this part. Yeah, I'll be uh, taking my ruler with me for tracks. <laughs> And taking every, I've already started studying the penguin tracks. Isn't that crazy? Oh my gosh! But how uh, many yeah. species of penguin is there down that way? I believe it's a six. Hi, you're the one going. Look at me. Oh my gosh, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I should know that exactly. I was. I was already studying it, but now I'm like panicking right this moment. But um, <laughs> but yeah, but you know, and we're going to be out there in kayaks and watching the whales. Zodiacs. I've seen pictures of the well kayaks with the oh. whales coming up, and yeah, the oh zodiacs is how we go from the ship to the shore to shore. But um, I'm super excited because South Georgia's got that, the penguins that yeah. are like 10,000. Yeah. Right? Emperor. And then, um, yes. And then uh, just to touch Antarctica. But also, I'm just a big fan of the whole uh, endurance expedition yeah. and what they went through. If you haven't read that book, people, uh, get, get it. Just get it and read it. It's one of the most historically documented because of the journals involved. And, and one of the most successful true. survival stories ever. Yeah, oh my god! Yeah, she got it. She got it, it on uh, on books I, on I tape got or whatever. It so we could yep. hear it. Yeah, and we as it. we listened to <laughs> it, I'm like, we were I don't know halfway through it. I turned to her and I said, just so you know, I've been dead 14 times. Yeah, and that point. story we would because I'm not crazy about the cold. <laughs> but this, I, get to I would go have been through, dead. Uh, Blake's Passage will yep. be the last part of my journey, oh, and uh, just to know I'll be going through those waters. I don't know how I'm going to feel about it at the time because it's the roughest place. In the world, yeah, with the, you know, the ocean, the, uh, ocean and currents and all. Yeah, well, you've got like what but three or four sucked. different oceans dumping into that one. Yeah, region. everything's dumping in there, and it's incredibly turbulent. And uh, sometimes you can get through it in semi-calm, but usually it takes a couple of days to get through. Yeah, and it's pretty up and down. And uh, I'm not sure how I'm going to do on that, but I don't care. We're just going. <laughs> we're just going for it. Oh, I'm going to knock myself out if I have to. Gravel and dramamine. But it's all it's all good. So that'll be. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. When gosh. I think about survival skills and what that expedition did a hundred years ago. Now yeah, that's I, I, a story. I had to look up a bunch of words they used in that story. Sure. And I've since made um you made the biscuits. I made the uh, wooden sea biscuits. It was hardtack? Hard no, it, wasn't it was something post hardtack. They had their own name for it. Yeah. <laughs> hardtack is just like bread, I mean flour and water. Yeah. This actually has some salt in it and oh. a little bit of soda. They kept talking through the whole story about how they were eating this. Dang, I can't believe I can't remember it. No, it's so Look good. it up. We'll look it up. We'll look it up. Anyway, they, yeah, oh, they... It was good. They're, 
their stable their main their mainstay diet was mm-hmm. uh, jerky, mm-hmm. basically or pemmican. I'm sorry, yep. pemmican. pemmican. And this uh, sledge biscuits is what it was called. Sledge biscuits. That's, that's, that's it. That's it. Well done. And they they would mash it all up. They would they had I still yeah, haven't had a chance to they look up the cow. stoves that they had, but they had some kind of a stove that could run on. Uh, Ryan, seal fat. Ryan seal talked fat, about yeah. this in the in the podcast. Like that was something like shackle. Like my like Canadian history is very heavily dependent on the Arctic exploration of the Northwest Passage. Mm. Canada very much really pushes hard how important that was for Canada's development as a country. Ironically, it was never found. Uh, not until recently have we actually got the full Northwest Passage actually mapped out in a way that is actually like navigable. Really? It's still not fully because ninety percent of the time it's frozen. But back then, trying to get across from Europe, Western Europe, to Asia, to get to the spice routes, to get to the the Silk right. Road without having to cross Cape Horn and everything else like that, was drastically important. And if you could not have to cross the Rockies to get there, even better. Right. And so we had tons of explorers of like like on land, like doing kind of establish and find an established find a route, yeah, that could get them across. And the guy that was the most famous was Sir John Franklin, and Franklin was lost. His entire crew was lost. People tried to find them. Their ships were known as the Erebus and the Terror. They're the two famous ones. I did an episode uh, a few years back uh, around the same time that Ryan did the Shacklin episode. And it is contrasting as hell to Franklin between him and Shackleton because they were a full naval fleet. They were British Navy oh, that were going wow. in with the top of the line equipment with all the military funded mm-hmm. project, but it was under British superiority complex. Okay. They were British officers. They'll make it do because they're just British officers and we're, we're the British, best at yeah. what we do. We ruled the seven seas for this long. We can take the new sea. And make the new scene. Wow. And they reverted to cannibalism before they all died. Nature, oh nature don't gosh. care who you are. Yeah. Whereas Shackleton, Shackleton. <laughs> went in knowing he was not top dog down right. there. And he prepared everything he could. And even when everything Details failed. before he left. He, like, he allowed the one, the I think it was the cook, to bring a, a musical instrument. Even though they were only allowed to bring On one purpose. item each. Because yes. he was like, you need he more. He acquired them. He said, you yeah. will. You yes. will bring this. You, you must have us. that. Yep. He was a master at creating a team that yeah. could work. He was a master of people. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's what that struck me in the story. And, and his staff was incredibly loyal to him. Yeah. I mean, oh, they, they loved him because he took care of them in general. Yeah. You know? And he was willing to exert all the same effort they were. He, oh, wasn't he, was, he, waiting. he got right in there with them. He, there, he worked right with them. There's more. good documentation that Franklin basically stayed in the ship and waited for the guys to get the ships moved or move the sledges and do all this stuff. Right. Shacklin was in the trenches with them. Absolutely. Totally. And, yeah, that's well documented. It has to be that way if you're going to be a strong leader in a situation yep. like that. Yep. You can't sit Talk back and let everybody else do the work. Yeah. Right there. Right there. Yeah. He was... If you want to know more about the Shacklin, okay, yeah. go to that podcast episode that Ryan did. I'm... We're not going to turn into more of a shot. Okay, sorry. No, no, I'm just <laughs> saying, like, this is a great yeah, conversation, yeah, yeah. but, like, yeah. Antarctic now. So you didn't know you she was going. That's no, this is, no, like, I'm, I'm giddy. Excited. I'm giddy for you. I'm and I am giddy. so envious, but, like. I'm super giddy. I just need you to track penguins for me. Oh, no, that's not an issue. That's happening. It's not for you. Sorry. It's for me. <laughs> Let just, me live vicariously yeah. through you, damn it. Yeah, <laughs> this I'm going to be. Uh, I have a love for penguins, so this penguins, is just, like. I know. I, I cannot. Cannot wait. 
So yeah, I'll be doing, hopefully I'll be doing some live things. I'm hoping to do a video a day cool. and uh, sending that back to my school district and, mm. and maybe others beyond. Also, I'm doing experimental um, with Stark Industries. I'm doing an experimental. Uh, the theme is is the mind of the explorer, the explorer mindset. Mm. And, you know, we want to promote curiosity. We want to yeah. promote certain things within kids that get them out there and and uh, tracking, right? And yeah. doing bushcraft and doing things that are uh, in connection with the earth. And I'm going to wear a heart patch and they're going to monitor me, my health. And I'm yep. going to talk about how important it is to carry your health. If totally. you want to do these things your whole life, you know, you have to be uh, taking, care of taking care of yourself. And I'm going to do a polar plunge where you jump in. Oh, and, God. And uh, they'll mon monitor me on that. <laughs> At least once. I'm hoping maybe more than once. And I've, uh, I've done cold water, water immersion a lot. And yeah. the idea of doing that in the Antarctic. Yeah, I know it's crazy, but I, is... can't, I can't wait for that either. Shriveling my resolve. Yeah, I've been a couple so times. much, <laughs> and other things, I guess too. Oh my gosh, just realize what I just said. I know, um, like, <laughs> yeah, just the idea of like diving into that you ocean gotta, or you jumping in. Yourself in life, uh, she told yeah. me she was going to do the polar plunge, and I'm like, do they have a body harness on you? Do they have a tether? And she said, you're no right idea. there. You're like yeah. right there. You know, and I'm you like, just come right back because I really want you to come home. I've done. We got too much to do in too many places. <clears throat> I've done too many cold water immersions. I'm like, I hope they have a lot of levels of safety. It'll be fine. Yeah. Oh, the, the, this kind of stuff they got covered. We got. We do cold water immersion training up this way, and it's mm -hmm. it's by the book. It's one of the safest things you can do. Okay, well. Um, for me, it's just the idea of, like, just the shock effect to the body yeah. of the cold. God done it. I've done like, it. We've both done it in snow melt. Oh, man. Yeah, and it's, yeah. That, I, yeah. I'll leave it at that. I can't even imagine the Antarctic waters. Yeah. It's salt water, and it's not frozen, and it's way below 32. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, there's... Like an entire ecology happening, an entire ecosystem happening below those waves. I know. Oh, I've seen, right. yeah, some right. na what Nat Geo pictures and stuff. Yeah, as ice melted underneath glaciers, they there's more melting going see on. Cameras now, underneath, right and I'm now, like, oh my god, ever look at before. Mm -hmm. It's affecting all of us. Yeah. Antarctica is the heartbeat of the planet. Yeah, and it's affecting all of our lives. All that fresh water melting yeah. into the salinated waters is going to desalinate, and it's going to change things drastically. And it's Change the whole currents, all the everything. Current, yeah, everything. That's the big pucker point. If that Gulf Stream current stops, yep. your rain, Europe's going to be thrown into an ice age, and yeah, well, you're going to have desertification happening. All kinds change, of stuff. Changes happening. It's yeah, we have. Sobering. Get your bushcraft skills in line. <laughs> not, out of, yep. not out of fear. I'm going to step right nope. in there and stop that. But out of knowledge, and that I really, really believe that what you're doing with your podcast, yep. and what you're doing, Cal, with your skills. Um, is you're reconnecting people, right? You're reconnecting them. And if there's anything that's going to make a difference in this world is we have to reconnect our species to the earth. The and natural world. And 100%. that's how you do it. And when we do that, anything is, is possible. Uh, we can make a difference. And that was something that with Chris's workshop, originally it was called Learning Nature's Language. And recently he's been considering re, uh, renaming it Relearning Nature's Language because... Yeah. This was a language that we all spoke at one time, and it was taken from us. It was taken from us by many peoples across the world, from many peoples across the world. Mm -hmm. And there's like, I'm trying to really, I'm going to paraphrase, there's this phrase about like fencing, and the idea of like whoever the bastard was 
that put up the first fence and said, this is now mine, was a liar and a charlatan. And that kind of concept of like how we've changed, there's that, that uh, Bob Perkins phrase of people talk about the first, uh, that we screwed up when we climbed out of the first trees. And he goes, no, we screwed up when the first son of a bitch took a bow and th- shot an arrow out of him instead of using an atlatl. <laughs> he talks about that. He's like, that's when we screwed up. That's when society began to develop agriculture and religion and taxes. And everybody hates that, especially taxes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a Bob yeah. Perkinsism. That's yeah. been everybody hates taxes? Everybody hates taxes, apparently. That's what he says. I, I th- always thought it was like everyone can expect death and taxes. But I, I'm going to make a comment about my first trip in 2016 to South Africa. Please. And um, Kersey, I mean, Sandy had taken school kids over there. Mm. And a lot of adults found out about, you know, she, she started a Facebook page and kept parents and people interested and informed about that whole trip. And so mm. many adults said, wow, we would like to go take a trip over there. Right. So correct me if I'm wrong, but. You approached Lee Gutter and said, hey, we have a bunch of adults that would like to make it, go over there and have an experience. And he's like, well, what do you want to do? She said, why don't you put together a trip and package like you would want to run? Mm. Oh, my God, he knocked it out of the park. Cool. So, but, was, that so, the, was that the honeymoon trip? Yes, 2016. We got married. When we got married, I wanted to take Hal to Africa. I wanted to share that with him. Mm. But... um I just said, and for our honeymoon, we're going to do that. But let's take anybody else who wants to go. So anybody else can sign up for it. Cool. So that's how it happened. Okay. I took my dad. He was 80 years old. Oh, wow. And uh, it's the best time we've ever had together. Uh, but anyway. No, but where I'm going with this is that um, basically I got dumped. not dumped. I got exposed to a third world country. Right. South Africa is not a third world country. Okay, I got exposed it's to a, a country that country. they don't live anywhere near. It, it was drastically different for yeah, me. Johannesburg a... is a major city, huge airport, yeah. but well-developed. Major, yeah. major city, first world country. So I... But I drastically back, different from I came back States. with a, a, a much different awareness and attitude about my upbringing. Right. And what we have in America. Yeah. What we have, I'm sorry, in the United States. Yeah. I'm just now experiencing some more of America. Yeah. Up here north of the border, right? But one of the things that struck me is like, man, this automobile is absolutely amazing. And it's practically worthless worthless without the infrastructure that we drive it on. Yeah. And how do we have that infrastructure? It's built by gleaning taxes from Mm -hmm. fuel sales. It made me say, you know what? I think that's a good trade for me. I buy a gallon of gas, 58 cents of it goes to taxes, and they, they help keep this infrastructure operational and, and, mm-hmm. and functional. And I'm going, I've, I came back with gratitude that taxes aren't bad. Yep. Excessive isn't an argument. I'm yes. just saying. And how they, del- how they use those taxes for certain things we can be questionable. But I'm just saying. At the end of the day. We have infrastructure here that. That needs to be taken care of. If we're, yeah, they're like that's why in like the state of Wyoming, <clears throat> they don't. They're like I'm not going to call them the libertarian state because I'm not sure there is a libertarian state that's a fully. But they are very much like they don't have a state a state income tax. They don't have certain sales tax and things like that in okay. their state. Most of their money for f- roads, for 
uh, schools, for libraries, their social structures that they require, their infrastructure for, for their society is from resource extraction. So they do like gas and oil, timber, hunting licenses. Yeah. Because it's Yellowstone country. You got the big elk. You got the big moose. You got the mm-hmm. big game animals. Yeah. And so like if you get caught poaching out there, it's a whole other, like you get fined in West Virginia. You might even see a little bit of jail time. You will be fined and you will see jail time in Wyoming. Yeah. Like it is because you took money from their school. You took money from that road that needs repair. And yeah. the guys that play, they get 16 feet of snowfall there. Yeah. They need those roads dug. So you take that elk out of season or without a permit, without a license, without the tag. You're literally taking money from the state that could have done a bunch of work. And so like I get the idea of taxation, why these things are like necessary. Because if we live in a society, yeah. we need to accept that we need to live in a society. Yeah. And so like I 100% agree with you on that part. I get that 100%. It's a fascinating part of like what we talk about. Like we had Stuart on the podcast. You and I were talking about Stuart. I earlier. love that episode. One of my favorite episodes so far. And I basically just sat back and let the guy rant. It was perfect. <laughs> just had to feed him an idea here and there and just let him keep going. And one of the things he brought up that you and I were talking about earlier was the lone wolf fallacy yeah, yeah. of bushcraft and survival folk. Yeah, that really drove it home for me. That we, was like, huh. we are a social species from day yes. one. Oh, yeah. Before we were a human, we were still a social species. Before yeah, we yeah. were that species, we were still a social species. Yep. We go, you about go back to Australopithecus and you're still looking yes. at a social species yeah. that had to work like meerkats or anything else that had a social structure. Yeah. To, to have this like imagination that I'm just going to go and hunt a buffalo and live off that is so foolhardy. It's romantic on the surface. Very much so. <laughs> so was Christopher McCandless's dream of living in a bus out in the Alaska It's not wilderness. romantic to anybody who's had a taste of it. It's lonely as hell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're not meant to be alone. You're no. really not. We are high-functioning social animals. Yeah. And, like, you you see on survival shows, like Alone, where they do those specials where they'll let you have a team, or they'll let you go with, like, your sibling or your, your spouse, and you try it. And suddenly things are a lot easier, just with one extra person around, whether it's just someone you can talk to. Or they're helping, you're, they're getting the fire while you get the water purified. Or you're the one focusing on the hunting while they get a bunch of traps checked and set. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. it's Defined, it, defined chores. And, it, it makes so much. Social, yeah. And so like we, we are at a pinnacle of social species where we can say, okay, we are going to take care of our elderly. We're going to take yes. care of our infirm. We're going to take yes. care of those who have special requirements and that cannot do the same labor that we do and we can delineate the tasks between us because we are at a point where we don't have to hunt and gather and scrounge and fight to survive against lions and cape buffaloes and everything else we can build a society that can take care of them and all you got to do is give a little bit just a little just a little bit you know we went over um two years ago we were over in south africa with a group and i wanted to do bushcraft there Mm. it was our first bushcraft course and uh, spent a lot of time developing it. But one thing that we did that I really wanted to do during that course was have a lion watch. Mm. And basically that's when you go out in the bush and you spend the night. And you have a fire going and everybody's sleeping around that fire and you have to take a shift. Yep. And this is how it was done in the old days. And yep. I would stay. I stayed up. I was so excited. I stayed up all night. Yes, you took half my watch. <laughs> I did. I couldn't help it. I was so excited. But awesome. you're up at night and you're 
You're the person who's awake. You take your shift. You keep the people safe. They can sleep soundly and you're watching for eyes. And basically, um, for us, we had a flashlight and we'd turn it on every five minutes and we'd just scan 360 all the way around. Look for eyes. <laughs> for eyes. <clears throat> and there was a hyena that's pretty much stayed with us that night and she would be moving. And at one point I got I got talking with someone like you kid, we were just talking yeah. too much and I didn't get hit my light on. Yeah. And then finally I'm like, oh crap, I'm kinda late with my light. And I turned it on and that hyena was at Cal's feet and he when he was sleeping in his sleeping bag. And I shined that light on the hyena, and it kind of looked at us like, crap, you know, I got caught in the hyena. It's kind of like, but oh. um, that whole thing about what you just said, about we were not meant to be alone. Yeah. That, to me, is just one small example, but it nails it. We yeah. have always stuck together. We're stronger together. We're a tribe, yeah. and together we evolved. And if we stick together, we maybe we'll continue evolving. Who knows? Yeah. I... I have these like very like abstract thoughts in my mind, like where we're going to be in 1.3 million years. Cause we were so different 1.3 million years before. If we survive for the next 1.3 million years, if the world survives, the, the world, world like, will be fine. and that's like what I've said as jokes before is like the world will be fine. It's that George Carlin line. The world will be fine. We're screwed. Yeah. I have a poster that I hung up for years. It's not, it's not, you know, people are like, save the earth. I'm like, no, no, save the humans. That's yeah. what it says. A big planet. Yeah. Save the humans. Save. She'll just give us a big shake if he has to, like a dog. Like and, I was saying uh, that earlier. You told me that today. I was today. saying that earlier. Come up, are you? Yeah. We're that's just fleas do. on a dog's ass. We are ass. fleas on a dog. And she will just eventually have enough of us if we don't <laughs> get a little bit more respectful and she'll mm -hmm. shake us off. And the next primate, or actually I was talking to someone who's like, no, it's not going to be a primate. It's going to be a cephalopod. Talk about the intelligence of the octopus. Yep. And I thought about that, and that's kind of stuck with me. And I'll I'll leave you with that thought. It's like Thanks. holy no, who knows? Who yeah, knows? yeah, Cthulhu Photogen. It's a wonderful <laughs> journey, though. There's there's so many like there's um. Back in 2013, I believe I read this article that was called the post-apocalyptic cetacean world. It was talking about like mm -hmm. how the mm -hmm. oceans have changed drastically because of extreme whaling of the last 400 years and how whales have evolved. And we were talking about the bowhead and how we don't know how yeah. bowhead whales get, but they have memory that lasts for eons yeah. kind of thing. Whales have changed how they act. And this is not just the more recent stuff that people are talking about on social media, like the, the orca that's been attacking yachts and stuff. Right. That's a recent thing, but that's not a new thing. Orcas have been coordinating attacks against fishing vessels for about 20 or 30 years now to steal their catches because screw those humans. This is an easy meal for us because they learned that they have to be rougher to survive. Certain whales have changed their entire migration routes to avoid human habitations because their grandparents remember when they were calves and all their family got wiped out. And they were the only survivors of their pod. And so they avoid where the humans are. And certain whales have changed their entire drastic, drastic changes of how they live. And so I always like, and whales have converged out of the water and back into the water multiple times over evolution. And so I always have this like thought in my back of my head. There was this TV show on when I was in high school called Life After People. And I always thought whales or dolphins might be the next you know, dominant species to then come back after us. My other thought was corvids. Oh. I've always thought about corvids, so ravens, jays, and crows. Because how smart they are. How intelligent they are and how their language evolves yeah. rapidly. 
Raven's, uh, there's Hein, there's a guy named Heinrich and a guy named Heinlein, and one of them wrote Starship Troopers, and the other one wrote a book called The Mind of a Raven, and Ravens in Winter. I think it was Heinlein, or not, Heinlein, yeah, I think it was Heinlein that wrote Starship Troopers. Um, Heinrich wrote these two books about ravens, and specifically Corvids and Ravens in Maine, and how their language drastically changes, and how there's dialects, and how the local ravens know if an unlocal raven showed up oh my. because they can tell the accent. Yeah, the That's interesting. Birdies, you can hear that when I'm birding in different states. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet you can. Accents in the, yeah. yeah. The one, the, the ravens in Boston are a little bit more, ha, ha. <laughs> That's Selling, funny. You should yeah. hear West Virginia ravens. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the northern ravens up here yet? No, I have not. So, we heard one the other day. The yeah, corking and one. stuff? I heard one flying over. No, I just, see it. <laughs> It was one or two times. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. They do all these crazy sounds up here. They, there's one sound that they'll do that sounds like there's no other way to explain this. It's like a gulping sound that also sounds like a ping pong ball on a tin roof. That's the only way I can explain okay. it. It's the weirdest sound, but it's clearly the most raven sound you've ever heard. The okay. ravens up here, the first time I brought my buddy Rob Mania up and Mikhail and Norseman up uh, from Brothers of Bushcraft to Halliburton Forest, which is just down the road from here. Okay. Um, we were walking up there. They had at the time a captive moose that was raised since it was a calf on their facility because its mother had been killed by a car. And they have a zoo that, license. because Hershey? Hershey the moose, yeah. yeah. I yeah, yeah. listened. That was great. That yeah, yeah, Hershey. Yeah, Hershey. Oh, Tegan, yes. Yeah. So we're taking these guys over to meet Hershey. And Paul uh, Rob goes, oh, my God. That is the biggest eagle I've ever seen in my life. I'm like, where's the eagle? He goes, right in front. You're like, that ain't an eagle. Say like, what is it? And then the raven flew away. And he was like, "We're not on the west coast." I'm like, no, that's a northern raven. Corvid cora, a covid cora, a corvid corax. Not like what's the word for? I think it's like, anyways, the northern common raven. Mm. And they're legit, like an inch shorter than a bald eagle. Oh they're wow. massive, and their beaks get like nine inches long. No, what? like they are huge birds. And they, that's what you heard. Flying there. That's not your little like Maine Raven or your Baltimore Ravens. Well, stuff. we have Ravens, some oh, Ravens in West Virginia. Yeah. yeah, these are they. They make any Raven I've seen in the United States and Southern Ontario look like a crow. Like wow. they are massive birds up here, and their like their wingspan can be almost the size of this table that we're sitting at, almost awesome by about maybe six inches shorter. Massive birds, and like they, they use those beaks to kill prey. They oh, like yeah. karate chop and okay. stuff. They they literally just lift their bill and drop it on the back of a roadkill, nearly dead rabbit kind of thing, oh, wow. and break its neck. Huh. They're such a cool bird, and they're all over around these areas. And like their intelligence levels, and their their tactics. We were talking about the the ravens that hunt on the west coast mm-hmm. using dizzying effects on mountain goats. In Maine, they know that they can't open up the carcass. So they check to make sure it's a carcass, not a sleeping animal, by sending in one raven to dance around and scream at it. And when that raven's confirmed it's a dead animal, he changes his call, or they change their call, and all the other ravens change their call and bring in a wolf, a bear, or a coyote. Oh, that integration Brilliant. of species. And nice. then they let them rip open the carcass and eat all the guts, and then they come down and pick up the scraps and then get in there and eat the fat and everything else. Wow. So like they've trained wolves like we train dogs. Right. <laughs> wow. Things like that, where they, they've learned to... It check the danger, move from the danger, or confirm it's dead and not a danger, and then bring in their dogs and let their dogs do the work to open up the carcass and set up the dinner table for them. Wow. Like, there is a possibility if humans disappeared in the next generation or two, 
I would say cephalopods, cetaceans, or corvids. Something with a C at the something beginning of its like name. That, right. <laughs> My name's Cal. There you go. Cal. 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 Califorms or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, this has been awesome. This has been great. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks it's, so much. It's getting very late. I think we're all getting kind of loopy and tired, especially with me ranting about ravens and cephalopods and stuff. Hey, it's, <laughs> it's your podcast, dude. However, you, whatever direction you take it in, I'm just here for the ride. Well, we got a very cool class to teach tomorrow. All of us oh, yeah, together. Yeah, do. Very, very cool one for Good the hunter's fun. journey. With more live classes coming up in the future, we're hoping to be doing some hunter's journey classes in the states of West Virginia or Ohio in the future. Absolutely. I'm looking forward. We're hoping to, the, to bring Cal and Sandy Moore back up in this. Yes. I, I want to bring you both. Oh, you know, we, we were need, driving we up. I'm like, it. you know what? This we could turn into an annual it. thing. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Or yeah. more than annual if it gets if it gets flowing. Oh yeah, yeah. You no, never I'm good know. for that. Yeah. So with all that said and done, I want to thank both of you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. This yeah, has been thank great. Thank you. And I can't wait to see where this goes in the future. Yeah. For all those folks listening, thank you very much for tuning in tonight with us or for this episode whenever you're tuning in. It could be morning. I don't care what time they watch or they listen. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for your time listening with us and having your time with us. I hope you enjoyed this episode. To those of our supporters at Patreon, thank you so much for your support. we got more content coming your way for you. If you are not a supporter at Patreon, but you want to support us for as little as a coffee a month, it sounds like one of those UNICEF commercials. Anyways, <laughs> go over to patreon.com slash Canadian Bushcraft. Just, there we go. And support us over there. And if you want to learn more from Sandy and Cal, check over at Original Wisdom, as well as check into the Hunter's Journey course, which is coming back up very soon. We're going to be rocking up again. We're teaching our very first live class for Hunter's Journey tomorrow morning at the time of this recording. Uh, so with all that said and done, check us out at huntersjourney.com, as well as Original Wisdom, as well as here at the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast, and everywhere else you can find out more. Thank you very much, folks. Take care. <laughs>